Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is The Norman Invasion Part 5 The Arrival of Strongbow and the Siege of Waterford. This show looks at one of the most crucial years in Irish history, 1170, when the main Norman force under Strongbow finally landed in Ireland. His arrival was preceded and followed by two major battles. Bagan in May and the Siege of Waterford in August and these form the basis of today's show. I have to say I have really enjoyed making this episode as it contains some of the most fascinating events we have yet covered in Ireland's medieval history. Now before I get into what is a somewhat bloody episode I just want to remind you of my upcoming tours of medieval Dublin. My tour of medieval Dublin is a unique chance for you to see what survives of the medieval city in the modern landscape and hear the stories of our long-dead ancestors. Unfortunately, spaces are limited to 20 places and the next available date is Saturday, August the 23rd. If you want to guarantee your place, simply go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash medieval tour and book now. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash medieval tour and book now. In the summer of 1170, Ireland stood on a precipice. After the arrival of several hundred Norman mercenaries in the previous year of 1169, the fortunes of the Gaelic King of Leinster, Diarmid Macmara, had been transformed. With these mercenaries, he had reconquered most of the power he had lost and re-established himself as a major player in Irish politics. However, this was only the beginning, a prelude, if you will, to Dermot's main ambitions. He was still waiting for the main force of his mercenaries, led by the Norman Lord Strongbow, to arrive. And when they did, they would be a game-changer. Dermot would then look to dominating the entire island of Ireland. 
After a long three-year wait for Dermot, it seemed that Strongbow was finally ready in the summer of 1170. The first real signs that his arrival was imminent came in the form of a rotund individual called Raymond Le Gros, or Raymond the Fat, who led 100 or so Normans to prepare the ground for Strongbow's 1,200-strong army due to arrive in the following months. However, even after Dermot's successes in 1169, this large scouting force quickly ran into trouble, which had the potential to create huge problems for Strongbow when he followed them. When Raymond Le Gros arrived in Ireland, he landed at a beach called Bagan Bun, and he and his followers encamped on the headland above the beach. This was a perfect location for a defensive camp as it was situated on a finger of land jutting out into the sea. Cliffs provided impenetrable defences on three sides while the landward side was defended by an earthwork. Now little did Raymond and his followers know that they would desperately need these defences very shortly. Not long after they landed, Raymond was joined by Strongbow's uncle, Hervey de Montmorency, who was already in Ireland for around a year at this point, and they set about making preparations for the arrival of the man himself, that Strongbow. However, this led to a very foolish and silly move. In order to gather supplies, they raided the region surrounding the beach of Bagan Bun for cattle. This served to alert the Gaelic Irish of neighbouring territories and the inhabitants of the nearby town of Waterford that something major was afoot. Now already wary of the Normans' advance in Ireland, they resolved that they were going to march on Bag and Bun and drive these new Normans into the sea. Whether they knew exactly what was happening is not certain, but it is entirely possible that by the summer of 1170, word had drifted across the Irish Sea with traders that a Norman lord by the name of Strongbow was attempting to hire every ship he could lay his hands on to ferry an army to Ireland. Whatever information they had, the presence of Raymond Le Gros and Herbie de Montmorency's camp at Bag and Bun unnerved them and raising a large army numbering at least over a thousand men, the citizens of Waterford and the surrounding Gaelic Irish resolved to drive the Normans back into the sea. Soon a disastrous situation for the Normans encamped at Bag and Bun was developing. Outnumbered at least ten to one, they were in a dire situation even with their highly defended camp. While there were other Normans in Ireland at this point, led by Robert Fitzstevens, they weren't aware of the situation at Bag and Bun, so Raymond Le Gros and Herbie de Montmorency couldn't expect any relief. Indeed, at this point, Raymond was probably fighting in Munster after Dermot MacMurrah had directed him to support a king there, Donal O'Brien, who was fighting their common enemy, the High King Rory O'Connor. But that's a different story entirely. Back at Bag and Bun in the summer of 1170, it seemed that Strongbow's advance force was doomed. And this certainly didn't augur well for the main invasion force when it arrived. Nevertheless, Strongbow's uncle and Raymond de Gros were not going to go down without a serious fight. Despite their hopeless situation, they still prepared to launch an offensive raid out of the camp into the army amassing on the landward side. However, as they tried to prepare, chaos broke out inside their fortification. Along with the people trapped inside, 
were hundreds of cattle the Normans had stolen from the surrounding countryside. The chaotic situation as they prepared for battle unnerved and terrified these cattle and once the gates were opened for the Normans to begin their charge the terrified animals bolted out in front of them. However, this calamitous situation now turned to the Normans' advantage. The stampeding herd proved far more deadly and destructive than the hundred Normans could ever have hoped to have been. The momentum, pace and destructive power of the surging animals collided head-on with the army from Waterford. For anyone who has never seen herds of animals moving like this, it can be truly terrifying. Unsurprisingly, carnage ensued and the cohesiveness of the army gathered outside was shattered. As the soldiers were trampled underfoot, chaos reigned and in this moment, Raymond de Gros and his companions saw their opportunity, their one chance to survive. Before the attacking army could regroup, the Normans set upon them, killing large numbers and putting the remainder to flight. Incredibly, while it had been largely due to the intercession of a wild herd of cattle, by the day's end, the highly outnumbered Normans had emerged victorious at Bagenbun. Around the headland, bodies littered the field, while inside the now secure camp, there were 70 prisoners who had been taken alive. What should be done with the prisoners divided the Normans, and this led to one of the most notorious events of the conquest. When discussing the fate of the prisoners, the Norman leaders were divided. Raymond Le Gros made the case for compassion, arguing that they had valiantly tried to defend their own country and should be ransomed back to their people. However, Strongbow's uncle, Herbie de Montmorency, held the day with a grim argument and one that set a dark portent for the future of Ireland when he said, So let our victory be consummated, that the death of these men may inspire fear in others, and as a result of the example we make of them, this lawless and rebellious people may shrink from engaging our forces in the future. For the seventy captives, this meant a brutal end, which became a very stark lesson to the rest of Ireland of what happened to those who tried to resist the Normans. They first had their legs broken before being handed over into the care of a woman called Alice of Abergavenny, the earliest Norman woman recorded in Ireland. Alice showed no compassion. Reputedly having lost her lover in the battle beforehand, she beheaded all 70 captives. Their broken, dismembered and mutilated remains were then tossed over the cliffs into the sea around Bag and Bun. While this sent out a spectacularly brutal message, the outcome of these events at Bag and Bun had major political implications. While the lyric composed about these events, at Bag and Bun, Ireland was lost and won, is a grave overstatement, the victory on the battlefield and the massacre afterwards ensured Strongbow would face no opposition when he attempted to land. However, while things were going spectacularly well in Ireland, the same could not be said for the man himself back in Wales. In 1167, the Lord of Strigol, Strongbow, and several other Normans had agreed to come to Ireland to fight for Diarmuid MacMurrah. While Robert Fitzgodbert, Robert Fitzstevens, Maurice de Prendergast and Maurice Fitzgerald had all departed to fight for Diarmuid 
between 1167 and 1169, Strongbow himself could not leave until he had received royal permission and his departure was constantly hampered by the King of England, Henry II, who became a major obstacle. The backstory to this is that Henry neither liked nor trusted Strongbow. In the 1140s, as a young man, Strongbow had fought for King Stephen in the civil war against Henry's mother, the Empress Maud, and Henry had never forgot this treachery. In this light, he seems to have done absolutely everything he could to stop Strongbow coming to Ireland. So, in late 1167, he sent him to Germany as part of an escort for his daughter Matilda, who was to marry the Duke of Saxony and Bavaria, Henry the Lion. Nevertheless, while Strongbow watched the marriage of the 12-year-old Matilda to the Duke who was in his late 30s in Minden in Germany in early 1168, his mind was still focused on Ireland. When he eventually returned home, he succeeded in gaining permission from King Henry to come to Ireland. However, the nature of this permission has been debated by historians ever since. Gerald of Wales, that famous Norman chronicler of the invasion of Ireland, writing a few years after the death of Strongbow, recalled that Henry's permission was a permission of sort, for it was given ironically rather than in earnest. The ambiguity surrounding this would have huge consequences, but Strongbow certainly took it as a green light. Back in Wales, from his base at Chepstow Castle, he gathered around him a large army which would eventually number over 1,200 men, including 200 knights. And by August 1170, he began making his way through South Wales to his disembarkation point of Milford Haven. Incidentally, if you want to see some pictures of Chepstow Castle, where Strongbow made these plans, I'll be posting them to my website, irishhistorypodcast.ie, in the coming days. You should check them out. Back in late August 1170, Strongbow reached Milford Haven. But at the 11th hour, the entire plan of coming to Ireland was thrown into doubt and chaos. A messenger from King Henry II arrived, informing Strongbow that the king had now changed his mind and that he was forbidden to leave for Ireland. This meant that if he did leave, his lands and titles would be forfeit. Strongbow no doubt raged and fulminated about this dilemma. He had made a mistake nearly all of 30 years earlier as a young man by fighting for King Stephen and it seemed that Henry II was intent on punishing him for this for the rest of his life. If he set foot on the ships gathered at Milford Haven and went to Ireland he would defy Henry and confirm the king's suspicions about him. However, Strongbow had no hope of a successful future in Wales. So it was in this context that he took what was a fateful and risky decision. He decided he would press on for Ireland. His lands and titles, the Earldom of Pembroke, the Lordship of Strigol and other bits and pieces across England and Wales were declared forfeit. He was now more or less an enemy of the crown. This certainly gave him and the Normans heading to Ireland in the summer of 1170 a certain steeliness. Failure wasn't an option. They had to forge a new home in Ireland. They couldn't return to Wales any time soon. They arrived off the coast of Ireland on St Bartholomew's Eve, that's August the 23rd, 1170. Once they reached the estuary of the Shore River 
on the south coast of Ireland, they sailed up this river system for a few miles. As the land closed in around the ships, Strongbow looked onto a country that would decide his fate. He would conquer this island or die trying. He had few other options. About 15 kilometres up the estuary, there was a major confluence between two rivers, the Shore and the Barrow, but Strongbow's fleet pulled into the well-scouted position before this major junction at Passage East. By landing at this spot, it unveiled their intentions to all. Passage East lay scarcely 10 kilometres east of the town of Waterford. The town's inhabitants had already been mauled by Herbie de Montmorency and Raymond Le Gros earlier in the summer at Bag and Bun, and it was clear Strongbow was going to try and take Waterford now. Within a day of landing on August the 23rd, Strongbow was joined by his allies from Bag and Bun, Raymond Le Gros, and his uncle, Hervey de Montmorency. They now wasted little time and immediately moved on their initial target, Waterford. Here they hoped to establish a base, but first they would have to fight a ferocious, violent and brutal siege. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 1170, there could be no doubt that the population of Waterford were aware of Strongbow's arrival when he landed at Passage East. It's impossible to think that dozens of ships and over a thousand people landing scarcely a few miles away could have evaded their attention. However, they may well have been caught off guard by the rapidity of the advance on their town when only two days after arriving, Strongbow led his army towards the town on the 25th of August, 1170. Manny no doubt expected him to wait for Dermot McMurray to arrive before he would make any move. The upcoming siege of the walled town of Waterford was going to be very different from the siege of Wexford that had followed the landing of his fellow Norman Robert Fitzstevens a year earlier. This was going to be inevitably a bloody, brutal and costly affair. The inhabitants of Waterford had already witnessed the massacre of 70 captives at Bag and Bun so they weren't going to surrender. They knew they could expect no mercy. While this struck fear and terror into them, it also steeled their resolve to resist. Watford, founded by the Vikings three centuries earlier, was situated in a naturally well-defended position. The triangular walls of the town enclosed about 15 acres, which were defended by the vast expanses of the Shore River to the north and a series of stout stone walls and towers. Inside the town, however, there wasn't much space. The population seeking refuge from Strongbow were literally in a tight spot. The small internal space would have meant that the walls were visible from almost every part of the town, creating a somewhat depressing and claustrophobic atmosphere. 
When the Norman army arrived, they drew up for battle. Now Strongbow himself didn't command from the front line at Waterford. Instead, this privilege was given to Raymond Le Gros. Inside, coordination of the town's defence felt the two men named Citric, presumably descendants of the Norse Ivar dynasty who had dominated political life in the town for centuries. This dynasty had withstood and adjusted to various political changes over the centuries, but they had never faced anything like the army now baying for blood outside their walls. Presumably the assault began with the Norman archers raining down a torrent of death on the town of Waterford. Given the small space inside the walls and the fact that the population were in effect trapped, men, women and children would have been vulnerable to attack in the form of the hundreds of arrows in each volley. After this, the Normans attempted to storm Waterford's walls twice and on both occasions they failed. However, during these probing forays, the astute Raymond de Gros spotted what he had been looking for, a weakness. At some point or other, medieval builders had inserted what was an unusual feature in the walls of Waterford. To support a structure jutting out from the walls above, they had erected a large wooden beam to act as a support from the ground below. Raymond now focused his energies on this beam, as he saw it as a weak point in the town's defences. He launched a third assault, and while the defenders were distracted, a small party went to work on the wooden beam. As the defenders beat back the attack, they heard the terrifying sound for any defender during a siege, that of collapsing masonry. The Normans had successfully cut through the beam, bringing down the building jutting out above, which collapsed a large section of wall beneath. Now, with a large hole in Waterford's wall, the Norman army poured in. In the densely packed streets, with houses lining what were narrow lanes, hundreds were massacred. According to some sources, this number may have reached 700 people. The defenders of the city, led by the two Citrix, held out as long as they possibly could. Eventually, however, when the Normans took one of the most important features in Waterford's defences, Reginald's Tower, the two men were taken and either died in battle or were executed immediately afterwards. Remarkably, if you visit Waterford today, Reginald's Tower, where these defenders of Waterford made their last stand, still dominates the quays and is a popular tourist attraction. At the siege's end, the undisputed ruler of the city was Strongbow and he sent word now immediately to Dermot MacMurrah, who travelled to Waterford as quickly as he could, with the other major Norman host in Ireland at the time, under Robert Fitzstevens, who had arrived in 1169. When he arrived at Waterford with Fitzstevens, Dermot MacMurrah now saw, amassed before him, a joint Norman force somewhere shy of 2,000 men. These were no longer just a minor force of mercenaries, but given that they were now led by a series of powerful nobles, not least among them Strongbow, they were a major force. While they had normally come to fight for Dermot, I can't but wonder if at this point the Gaelic king was slightly worried about the size of this army he had just hired. Who was in control now was debatable. If Dermot suggested doing something the Normans had little interest in, he was in no position to force their hand. That said, in terms of legitimacy, for the time being at least, Dermot was very important to the likes of Strongbow 
as it was on the basis of his invitation they had come to Ireland. However, there's no mistaking that even at this point, Strongbow and his Normans were already unquestionably looking to a future in Ireland, given they could not really return home. And soon they would establish even deeper roots when Strongbow received his payment, which he had agreed with Dermot back in 1167. For a man leading a military invasion, Strongbow caught a strange figure. He was by no means the ferocious figure we might expect. While three years older than he had been when Dermot first met him in Wales in 1167, he was still that same, somewhat shy, withdrawn individual with a feminine face and a weak voice. Nevertheless, this masked a well-respected battlefield commander as time would prove and an astute political figure. Just like Robert Fitzstevens, who had arrived in 1169, Strongbow, when he met Dermot, demanded his payment up front. While Fitzstevens' remuneration was the easily conquered town of Wexford, Strongbow's came in the form of a marriage contract, and within a few days of his arrival, the Norman lord was married. Now, Watford was hardly the most romantic of venues for a wedding after the siege of 1170. The town must have been in a chaotic state, the walls were partially collapsed while the streets themselves must have been littered with bloodstains and signs of destruction and violence everywhere. The bride in this marriage was the 17-year-old daughter of Dermot McMurray, Aoife. Her husband, Strongbow, was 43 at this point. While such a marriage in the modern world between a 43-year-old and a 17-year-old would be deemed highly inappropriate and on the very fringes of legality, In the medieval world, it wouldn't have raised any eyes at all. Don't forget, in 1168, Strongbow had disturbingly witnessed the marriage of a 12-year-old princess to the 41-year-old Duke, Henry the Lion. How Aoife McMurrah felt about this marriage is very difficult to know. She probably had met her husband already in 1167. She did, after all, accompany her father, Dermot, to Bristol when he had met Strongbow. Whether it was something she had romanticised or a day she simply dreaded, we will never know. But we can say for certain the couple probably had nothing in common. They couldn't even speak the same language. That said, the idea of a marriage based on attraction in the medieval world was almost unheard of, at least for the aristocracy anyway. For them, marriages were used to forge political alliances. This union of Strongbow and Aoife had huge consequences in terms of the political alliance it forged and for the future of Ireland. How Strongbow and his new in-laws, the McMurras, saw this marriage was probably remarkably different. For the Norman, under his people's laws and customs, this placed him nicely to become Dermot McMurra's heir. Now this was obviously why he had come to Ireland. Nothing else could possibly explain his actions. He had left his home, lost his lands and had gone to the trouble of raising an army of 1,200 men. The hand in marriage of Aoife McMurrah alone was clearly not the only reward. However, the Gaelic Irish probably viewed the situation somewhat differently. Certainly under Gaelic law, Strongbow's marriage to Aoife did not put him in the picture for succession. Instead, it would be her brothers and male cousins who would remain the potential heirs. Whatever about the legal points and attitudes of either side around this marriage, the reality of the situation developing indicated that Strongbow was here to stay. He had arrived ostensibly as a mercenary, as did his fellow Normans, but it was clear 
that they had other motives, which were slowly but surely unfolding. By 1170, they were in possession of Wexford, Watford and a stretch of land between the two towns. Then, as we have just seen, the most powerful figure among them, Strongbow, had married the King of Leinster's daughter. These men clearly had no intentions of leaving Ireland. While this would be the source of major tensions between Diarmid's sons and the Normans in time, in 1170 it appears to have caused little rancour. Perhaps the ongoing warfare was too distracting and not long after the marriage of Strongbow and Aoife, Diarmid and his Norman mercenaries moved on Dublin. While Dublin's rulers had submitted to Diarmid in 1169 when the Normans had harried the territory around the town, the ruling dynasts of Dublin despised MacMurrah and his family. Indeed, in 1115, Diarmid of father, Donacha, had been killed in battle near the city, and the Hiberno-Norse rulers there had subjected him to the horrific post-mortem humiliation by burying the corpse with a dog. No doubt this was something Diarmid or his family neither forgot nor forgave. Normans, like Strongbow, were also attracted to the idea of taking Dublin, a well-known port and town in northwestern medieval Europe. So, shortly after the wedding of Aoife and Strongbow, Diarmid Machmara left to gather an army in Leinster before returning to meet the Norman lord at Waterford. From there, the two set out overland for Dublin. If they could conquer this city, the Normans, within the space of over a year, would have taken Ireland's three most important towns and ports. However, there were some key questions unanswered in 1170 as the Normans and MacMurra moved north through Leinster to Dublin. How would the great powers of Gaelic Ireland react to this move? Particularly the High King Rory O'Connor in the west. Would he stand by and watch this happen? Tune in next time to find out. Before I go, don't forget to book your place on my next public tour on August the 23rd. It's quite simple. Just go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash medieval tour and book your place now. Until then, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.